You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Using oral agents for type 2 diabetes. What does a healthcare professional need to know in order to choose what type and when for their patients? Joining us to discuss oral agents for the treatment of type 2 diabetes is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Harold Schnitzer Diabetes Center at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Andrew Ahmed. Dr. Ahmed, welcome to ReachMD. My pleasure. We have now eight classes of oral agents, and what I'd like to do for our listeners is describe briefly how they work, their pros and their cons, and where they fit in the treatment algorithm. So let's start off with sulfonylureas. Yeah, I would suspect that uh, people are very familiar with sulfonylureas, which have been around for well over 50 years and which uh, clearly have proven to be effective. I think the questions that still remain uh, are whether if it weren't for the fact that they are the least expensive among the agents, that they would still hold their place in terms of overall frequency of use. Uh, Again, they are effective. However, they do cause hypoglycemia. They do cause some weight gain. Uh, And there's some questions about whether they affect beta cell preservation and at least the requirement to move on to a second agent faster. Okay, well, let's talk about the drugs that cause a lot of gas, the carbohydrate absorption inhibitors, precos, uh, Glycet, do you use them, and and where do they fit into your treatment algorithm? Yeah, it's interesting. The alpha-glucosidase inhibitors probably should have a bigger role in the United States than they do, but I, like many uh, clinicians, don't use them very often, largely because they're sort of moderately effective with A1C reductions that are more in the 05 to 0.8% uh, range, and uh, their side effects aren't very acceptable, it seems, to most of the U.S. population or the physicians that treat them. Uh, I actually use them sometimes for reactive hypoglycemia and probably more so, frankly, than I do for uh, type 2 diabetes. I I also like the data on uh, the pre-diabetes data when they used Acrobos, you know, as you know, in the STOP-NIDM study, and it it reduced the incidence of type 2 diabetes in those with pre-diabetes by 25%. So I I still think it's a pretty safe class. It's just just that uh, non-serious side effect of gas that really has... Uh, turn people off to the drug. Right. I think that they're uh, something we need to remember more often, so at least we would try them, because for some patients, they become uh, acceptable alternatives and really can help with specific issues such as uh, postprandial hyperglycemia. Now, what about metformin? First of all, you can let us know how it works, and if you do, you're the only person around that knows for sure, and and some of the pros and cons. Yeah, I think that uh, metformin is very interesting, the fact that it has been around for so long, I think we've really come to uh, agree that it's much safer than uh, people thought around the time that it got approved by the FDA, and clearly the contraindication profile that was put out at the time of its approval was a very conservative one based on concerns about previous experience with Fenformin. Um, It's one of the areas where I, I fully agree with the recommendations of the American Diabetes Association consensus group uh, around therapeutics and the algorithm they propose, because they propose it as being first line uh, right along with diet and exercise. And of course, the issue is that diet and exercise is very important. But if you 
if you try to rely on that as a primary strategy, we know that it's not successful and we leave people hyperglycemic for an inappropriate period of time. And metformin seems to have a lot of advantages in terms of lack of weight gain, lack of hypoglycemia, uh, and general well toler- well to- generally well-tolerated, although some patients clearly can't handle it because of diarrhea or occasional indigestion or other GI side effects. But you're right, we still don't know after all this time exactly what the mechanism. We always refer to it as uh, affecting hepatic glucose production, but even whether that's a direct effect or whether, because we would most often say it's due to improved insulin sensitivity in the liver, but we also, it appears it has some effects on GLP-1, and could that be an indirect effect to reduce hepatic uh, glucose production? Uh, There are a lot of things we don't know about it, but I think we are pretty comfortable that it's a safe agent that we can be using in lots of settings uh, as long as the patients tolerate it and they don't have uh, renal insufficiency, for instance. Absolutely. Now, Andy, one thing I want to talk about is the contraindication of metformin as it relates to kidney function. And uh, as you know, we're supposed to stop it when the creatinine gets to 1.5 in men and 1.4 in women. And I, I think it's an overrated contraindication. What do you think? The problem isn't, of course, that metformin causes renal insufficiency or promotes the renal insufficiency. It's simply that it's not cleared as well and you would build up levels and then would that cause lactic acidosis? And so the first thing is when you start to elevate, my opinion is, well, I will decrease the dose. But I think in so many patients, it has such an advantage in terms of uh, helping out the other medications you might use that I really don't like to get rid of it. And so I frequently will reduce the dose first. And probably when I get over 1.8 or 2.0 on the creatinine, I'll definitely stop it. And I do follow the creatinine clearance uh, or estimated creatinine clearance as a way to guide me there as well. But I think that's how a lot of endocrinologists, probably most endocrinologists, uh, feel about how they deal with it. And um, I I do think that there's probably no good prospective data that says that this creates very much lactic acidosis. Now, what about uh, the the older warnings about congestive heart failure or if a patient is over 80, you have to be extra cautious? Is that still holding up? Well, I certainly think that the one about congestive heart failure teaches us a lot of lessons. I mean, here's a contraindication we put in there, and then you actually come to the point where you actually gather some data and you find that people with congestive heart failure in general do better uh, if they take metformin than if they take other oral agents. And so clearly that is not a contraindication. I think that they lessened the the contraindication of the package insert as a consequence of that information, though they still caution people in cases of advanced congestive heart failure. Even there, though, it's more of a precautionary statement than anything we actually have data on. Uh, so I, I do think that. I think in older patients, again, it probably relates to the functional age and some other factors. I will admit that I've seen a few older agent patients who I have placed on it, and they've had unex, uh, unexplained weight loss that could only be attributed to that and that when we stopped it, they regained weight, and then, and, it, and it wasn't that they had clear-cut uh, GI side effects other than this sort of anorexia. Um, however, there's plenty of people who are even over 80 who get some benefit, again, probably watching what their total doses are, certainly watching their renal function, but even there I use it uh, cautiously in patients. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Amen, and we're talking about oral agents in the treatment of type 2 diabetes, TZDs, insulin sensitizers, thiazolidine, dions, call them what you like. Where do they stand now? This is an area where uh, individual clinicians uh, who have had experience with TZDs will 
form their own opinions uh, as to how they will use them in their practice. There's clearly a lot of controversy around them. I think part of the controversy is whether there are differences between the two. Uh, I guess to give you my opinion, I would say that that I do think there's a slight difference between the two, that I think the lipid uh, differences with uh, pioglitazone uh, as well as the outcomes data, particularly with regard to the proactive, which didn't really show what people had hoped, but nevertheless certainly was a good safety study and suggests that there's at least moderate uh, cardiovascular benefits uh, using pioglitazone, where I think what's happened with rosiglitazone is that I don't believe that it has a major disadvantage in terms of any cardiovascular outcomes as some of the literature or at least the media would indicate, but rather that it's more neutral and it may not be very different in cardiovascular outcomes from a lot of the other medications that we deal with. However, they do have some other disadvantages. I mean, they do cause edema. They do cause some weight, more, probably more weight gain on average than other classes, uh, and they probably are associated with increased fractures in women. Um, but they still have an important place because they clearly uh, can improve blood glucose in people who are highly insulin-resistant. I'm pretty cautious about using them with insulin, and I'm pretty cautious that I don't use the full doses as often as I did in the past, but I certainly do use pioglitazone and think that uh, it has a place in the armamentarium. Well, let's go to the next huge class, the DPP-4 inhibitors. Tell our listeners a little bit about this class, how they work, uh, and where are they fitting in? I think that these are different, and people need to make themselves aware of the differences between a GLP-1 agonist and a DPP-4 inhibitor. But clearly, these are agents that take advantage of the uh, things we've learned about the pathophysiology of diabetes and the effect of GLP-1 in our metabolism. And so... By decreasing the breakdown of endogenous GLP-1, we increase the levels about two to three-fold, and this has a great deal of effect on both decreasing hepatic glucose production by decreasing the inappropriate secretion of glucagon, as well as what I like to say is facilitating insulin secretion uh, through a glucose-dependent manner where you increase the the insulin secretion as you need it, but it automatically turns off as the glucose goes down. Therefore, as best I can tell, these agents have an outstanding safety profile. I really like them for patients who get into exercise and who um, we don't want to uh, cause hypoglycemia. And uh, they're a great uh, early agent or an add-on agent in those cases. Well, I want to just give you a chance to close our show and tell our listeners, you know, some guidelines on using patient baseline characteristics to choose a drug first or second? Right. I think that uh, the ADA guidelines and one of the things they do is uh, even though they call well-validated and less well-validated and then don't include DPP-4s, for instance, because they haven't been around long enough, that's really the only uh, divider that I can see is that it's really how long the agents have been around and they've chosen not to include DPP-4s yet because they've only been out a few years Uh, But I do think what all these different agents are doing are giving us different mechanisms of actions, and therefore, as we get into problems with uh, uh, adverse effects or we get into problems with uh, ineffectiveness of one of your initial agent, we now can really tailor it more to the individual characteristics of the patients, their weight, their likelihood of adherence to different regimens, uh, their 
uh, tendency toward hypoglycemia. Again, I think, again, it probably depends a little bit on whether you're doing from the bottom-up treatment where you're preventing people from rising, which is the most appropriate way, or if now you're looking at a patient who is already out of control and you're trying to bring them down. There's certainly lots of things about when you need a lot of help with insulin uh, sensitizing or an insulin sensitizer in the regimen. I think uh, weight makes a difference. Age probably makes a difference in terms of trying to avoid hypoglycemia, particularly in older patients. There are a lot of individual characteristics that uh, uh, play into this. Well, thanks, Andy. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Harold Schnitzer Diabetes Center at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Andrew Allman. Dr. Allman, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.